to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, February 27th, we are studying Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 11. In today's text, the Lord proclaims comfort to his people in exile, comfort that comes from his everlasting word, comfort that comes from the good news that he is their God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Martin Dressler. Pastor Dressler serves at Salem Lutheran Church in Blackjack, Missouri. Pastor Dressler, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you very much. Always good to be here. So we get started today, Pastor Dressler. Remind us of some context. We had Dr. Lessing yesterday introduce the book and this section of Isaiah as a whole. Give us some reminders as to what we should know as we prepare to look at the opening text here of Isaiah chapter 40. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as you and I talked about, it's always intimidating following Dr. Lessing, uh, but I'll try to do just a, <clears throat> a few things as, as, uh, as a reminder. And I think one of the things I'd like to highlight is just how significant Isaiah is for the rest of Scripture and especially for the New Testament. You know, how often it, it pops up uh, in quotes, either direct quotes or, or indirect quotes, allusions to it, but it's really significant in the, in the New Testament. Um, as I'm sure Dr. Lessing talked about uh, last time, uh, critical scholars tend to break Isaiah up into three different uh, categories or three different books, uh, 1 to 39, um, 40 through uh, 55, and then our text for today as well, or, or the, the later one, 50, sorry, 50, um, 50 to, uh, 56 to 66 at the end there. So uh, all those, those different books there. And, and it's, it's kind of interesting because we, you know, we run with the idea that there's really only one book uh, and only one Isaiah. And I think that really is significant, really is important, because if you pull them apart, um, there's a tremendous amount of richness that's lost. And I, and I was thinking about, you know, an analogy that could be used for that. Um, you know, if you consider any famous painting or any painting at all, but let's just run with the Mona Lisa for a second. You know, if, if you were to look at her eye and then take her eye and extract it from the rest of the painting, it would be interesting maybe because you could look at it and see brush strokes and things like that. But unless you put it back in its context within the view of the whole thing, you know, you're really losing the fullness and the richness of, of what was being done there. Um, and I think the same thing is absolutely true uh, with, the, with the book of Isaiah. Uh, when you pull out this section of it from the rest of the book, you're going to lose so many of the uh, really important uh, themes uh, that run throughout it. Um, <clears throat> so as far as uh, the historical context, yeah, you already mentioned some of that. Uh, 40 through 55 shows God's plan of return for exiles uh, after um, their time in Babylon. Um, and and uh, also that Judah is not going to receive this message, but that another servant is going to come along uh, uh, who will atone for the sin of, of Israel and also restore their relationship uh, with God. Uh, this is the suffering servant that comes up later. We're not going to deal with that much today, obviously, but uh, he'll come up later. Um, now, and actually, that's one of the reasons I think that that so many would suggest that Isaiah is written by multiple authors. There's this, this uh, sort of axiom that miracles don't occur. Uh, they're coming at it with the lens that uh, God does not uh, actively participate within his creation. 
Um, and so they're going to assume right out of the gate that, um, you know, knowledge about an event before it's happening simply can't occur. So for them, it sort of makes sense to split it up into, you know, multiple different books. But for us, we know that God can do whatever he wants because he's God. And so right. we're okay with saying it's it's one text and one, one Isaiah. Yeah. Um, I also think it's kind of interesting uh, how, how much of this section uh, is written in poetry. And <clears throat> I've been really uh, uh, inspired by, by um, poetry itself and its connection with theology. Uh, because in our culture, in our day and age, the assumption is that the truest kind of text you can have is a scientific text. Uh, you know, something that, that pulls things apart and gives you sort of like the raw data. Um, now, science is certainly good at, at certain things. It really helps us understand the mechanics of things. But there are certain things that scientific texts can't do for us. And what they cannot do for us is give us things like meaning uh, and purpose uh, and moral direction. Um, and so because we're dealing with, in this section of Isaiah in particular, we're dealing with the gospel, it's almost as if, you can't talk about it in any other way than poetry because poetry has so much, is able to carry so much more weight of meaning than ordinary prose can. And so you ask yourself, it's so true, it's so real that you can't not put it in poetry. I say the same thing about you know, Genesis, the early parts of Genesis. Um, so <clears throat> yeah, we're dealing with the gospel, the most ultimate thing, the most real thing. And so that's why we really wanna make sure that we say, hey, it's written in poetry, because it had to be. There's no other way that it could be done. That's good. I like that. And I think it's just helpful to keep in mind that genre, especially as we, we take a look at this section of Isaiah, so that we better understand how it's written and what it's conveying. We're going to see features of poetry like parallelism. That's a pretty big one when it comes to Hebrew poetry in particular. So we want to keep that in mind as we look at this text and going forward in this section. One more, I think what's important in terms of the context for this particular section, how does how do these 11 verses function within the larger section of Isaiah 40 to 55 as a, a bit of an introduction and, and help us see some of the things that we're going to encounter throughout the study? Right, right. So there is kind of that, that uh, uh, you get some adumbrations or, or uh, you know, hints of what's going to come here. So uh, verses 1 and 2 deal especially uh, sort of like an overview of the chapters, overview of 40 to 55. Uh, verses 3 to 8 are sort of a microcosm of chapters 41 to 48. And then you've got a 9 to 11, which are sort of a microcosm of 49 to 54. So you get really a, a beautiful short introduction that, that gives you a foretaste of everything that's to come. Um, and that's sort of a hallmark of, of Isaiah's way of writing as well. It's not linear. It's sort of cyclical. And you revisit uh, themes uh, you know, uh, over and over again, but themes which are built upon and expanded upon, and, and they're shown in, 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 in uh, maybe different facets of that same theme as you sort of work your way through the book. Yeah, that's right. So we're going to encounter some of those themes in this text already that will come up throughout this section of Isaiah. Let's go ahead and turn to the text, and as we do so, we will have opportunity to talk about more historical context and why Isaiah writes in this way. This is Isaiah 40, beginning at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way for, of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. 
and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. That is our text for today, Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 11. Pastor Dressler, the opening part of our text I associate with the season of Advent, a very familiar text, Handel's Messiah as well, makes it very famous. Comfort, comfort, ye my people, says your God. Talk to us about this comfort and why that's why it's double and why it's needed. Yeah, uh, you, you mentioned Handel there. I, I'm going to bring him back up again later, but you're right. I mean, anybody who's familiar with that, you've already got this chorus going through your mind. That's right. <clears throat> the, the tenor line. Um, so yeah, well, what is the comfort that that's being uh, that's being brought up here? Well, the first thing to remember is you know that uh, especially with with uh, Jeremiah and Lamentations, there's there's really no comforter involved there. Isaiah brings comfort, but not just comfort, uh, but double comfort. You know, there is comfort and then a repetition of that comfort, really driving this point home. Um, this kind of uh, comfort that Isaiah is talking about here, he's going to unpack that uh, in the next couple of verses. But I think it's important to remember that uh, the comfort that he's, he's bringing here is, already has an assumption in the background. The assumption is that the people of God are already in the process of repenting, right? They're already repenting um, in the face of the destruction uh, that they've encountered on account of their faithlessness. You know, they're having abandoned God. Um, now God is bringing in this, uh, this, um, this uh, gospel, this, uh, this comfort. Uh, it's also significant to know that, that this comfort is not based on Israel's sincerity or Israel's worthiness or any you know, level of holiness that they've achieved on their own account. It's something that God comes and gives purely as a gift, purely because he, he wants to do that. Um, I think it's also significant. There was I can't remember who said this exactly, but I like this, this way of thinking about it. Um, in order for repentance to occur, there almost has to be uh, a possibility of forgiveness. It opens up the, you know, forgiveness, this, this uh, chance of reconciliation uh, opens up the opportunity for someone actually to confess and to acknowledge sin. So I like to think about it in terms of you know, a, a dog maybe that's been abused uh, and that's snarling at, at anybody who approaches, unless that dog is shown kindness, unless that dog is shown that there's a chance that this person uh, approaching it has its, its good at heart, um, it will not accept any relationship with a human being. There has to be that, that gospel thing that kind of comes in first that then allows for this uh, repentance. Um, the term that I was referring to earlier, it's called the backspin of the gospel. Someone called it that, and I kind of like that. I think that's a helpful way of, of thinking about it. Um, other than that, there's really, uh, without the gospel, there's really no chance of, um, of uh, repentance because there's fear and there's despair. Uh, and there's hatred, you know. So Paul talks about sinners being the enemies of God, and they're enemies of God because they fear God because of their sin. So here God comes with this comfort to open up that opportunity for uh, uh, repentance and also for uh, 
reconciliation that's going on here. Um, this is how God takes enemies and, and, and turns them into his friends, right? Um, yeah. It's, yeah. It's a, go ahead, sorry. Well, no, I, I was just going to, I mean, yeah, this is, this is wonderful good news for people who are in exile, for people who have seen their homeland destroyed, who wonder if, if God is still with them. And in that regard, there's a couple of, of very small words within this first verse that we might be prone to skip over. It's the possessive pronouns. Mm-hmm. So my people, your God. Talk about the significance of just those two possessive pronouns. Yeah, that is huge. Uh, so in Isaiah 6, uh, God asks a question, whom shall I send? Uh, who will go for us? And then it's Isaiah who's going to bear this message, but he's going to bear it to this people. So there's this degree of separation that God has uh, acknowledged here between himself and, and his people. Um, now, it's, granted, it's, it's the people that have created this separation, right? They've walked away from him, and here God is simply acknowledging that. But here, um, you know, all of that is undone. And, and again, this is now my people. No longer is it that people over there. I remember there was a comedy I watched not too long ago where um, there were two brothers, and the one said to the other, uh, your mother is being terrible to my father. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's something like that. You know, the pronouns really, really matter a lot. Um, but yeah, they've been restored again as 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 God's people. He's he's, he's reclaimed them uh, as His own. Um, so now it's it's comfort uh, comfort to uh, to my people. So it's, the promise the promise there, especially that message, uh, is huge. Uh, it's got seventeen uh, references. This idea of speaking a promise or a message. It's got seventeen references to speech in those uh, first eleven verses. That becomes really really important. Well, the speaking comes up right away then in verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. And there's three things that should be cried. I think you said earlier, this is where we start to unpack that comfort of verse 1. Mm-hmm. Help us into verse 2. Yeah. So I like that too. The word, So the word uh, tenderly that we have in English, I, I really appreciate the way the Hebrew has that, which is like to speak upon the heart. Um, I kind of wish we spoke that way in English, actually. That's really, really quite wonderful. Uh, but this this tender speech is supposed to uh, restore the brokenhearted, restore the fearful. Um, it's not unlike, and, and Scripture uses it this way too. Uh, it's the kind of thing that uh, a husband would would speak to uh, to a bride, you know, or someone that he's sort of uh, looking to to, to uh, make his bride. Um, you can think, I don't know, Hosea. You know, that's that's a good example of an instance where Scripture speaks of God as. As, as the the the, uh, the groom and and his people or you know the church ultimately as his bride in the New Testament we get Christ as the groom and and the church is the bride as well so what what's happening here is this um, this promise or this speech is essentially the promise to make Jerusalem um, match the name again right the city of peace so not only is it peace uh, in, in the wake of warfare, in the wake of this uh, exile, so that Babylon is gone, but probably more found, definitely more foundationally, is the peace that's then going to be established uh, with God Himself. So, yeah, that that verse two does does unpack here. So the first one is that there's this warfare that's ended, uh, which can also be translated as hardship or something along those lines. That, you know, you can think those two things obviously tie in together. Uh, the hardship that Israel has faced is obviously the, the warfare that they've experienced, the devastation going on. Um, and then not only then is the warfare uh, ended, but uh, that iniquity is pardoned here. Um, and in fact, it is the iniquity uh, that has caused the warfare in the first place, right? Uh, it's this iniquity that has led God to use the Babylonians uh, 
to uh, inspire this uh, repentance uh, in the people of, of Israel as well. So you've got, again, the ending of warfare. You've got the, uh, the uh, promise of, uh, of iniquity pardoned. And then you got this last bit uh, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins, right? So you've got this, uh, uh, not just, you've got comfort, comfort at the beginning, and now you've got uh, double being received back from the Lord's hand for all of her sins. Um, I think it's kind of cool that this same concept is, uh, pops up in Job, where after Job has experienced all of his trials and after he's had the meeting with God, then you have this great restorer who comes, who doesn't just give Job back what he's lost, but he receives that plus, right? That double everything. He gets everything back. Um, and ultimately, you know, it, it, it's hard to talk about Isaiah and not put Jesus into it, right? Or not read Jesus through it because he's there in spades. Uh, so Paul talks about this sort of thing in Romans chapter 5 uh, when he says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You know, so you've got this double kind of thing going on here uh, in Romans 2. Um, you know, all of this, you can, you can talk, think maybe three other words kind of help to unpack this even a little more. Again, the concept of reconciliation, that Israel is brought back into a right relationship with God. Restoration, they're restored as his people. Um, and a definition of forgiveness that I think is extremely helpful is this. Uh, it's the promise that your past will not affect your future with me. And I really like that. So you got this forgiveness of sins. It's like moving forward. The things that you have done, it's not going to impact how you and I relate to one another uh, on an ongoing basis. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So again, we're, see we're seeing Jesus here already in Isaiah 40. He's called, Isaiah is called the fifth evangelist for that reason, because we do see our Lord Jesus so clearly. Now in, in verse 3, we see the forerunner of Jesus. Again, this is a, often an Advent text. And we get our friend John the Baptist, who shows up here in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. He's the voice. Talk to us about the voice that begins to cry in verse 3. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. There's a uh, punctuation plays into this. Uh, you can have something like, uh, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Or you can have uh, a voice crying out, uh, or a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So the question is, is the voice uh, you know, crying out, in the wilderness, uh, or is the voice crying out to prepare a way in the wilderness? So you've got two of those things going on there. Um, and I think so ultimately it's something along along these lines. You know, if you think about Israel's, or rather Judah's context, you know, it's become kind of a wilderness, hasn't it? I mean, Jerusalem is, is, is absolutely devastated. And so in that sense, it's, it's sort of a, it's become pretty much a barren place because of all that destruction going on there. Um, so with, with the connection with John the Baptist, there's something along these lines. You know, uh, we take it on, in a spiritual uh, sense as well, that the wilderness is the brokenness uh, and the sin uh, that, that we have in our hearts as well. And so we've got this voice crying out to prepare a way uh, in the wilderness for the coming of the Lord, to make, you know, this, this highway um, that's going to come, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Um, it's kind of interesting that... Uh, the Babylonians often spoke of uh, you know, a desire for their God to come on a highway too. Well, Isaiah is saying, well, no, Marduk's not going to do that. That's the name of their the Babylonian God. It's not Marduk who does that. Yahweh is the one who does this. And the question is, you know, okay, so why preparing a highway? Why I, I like, you know, if we, if we refer to uh, one of Jesus' parables in the New Testament, you can think about it this way. You've got the prodigal son, right? And then the father runs to the prodigal son. Don't get anything in the way of that father running to his prodigal son. 
<laughs> you know, get everything, get everything out of the way <clears throat> so that he can run and, and deliver his gifts and embrace his, uh, his prodigal son. So I think that's kind of the thing that you got going on here. Yeah, everything that would be in the way of God returning to his people, this voice is out there in the wilderness crying to get rid of that. Get ready this way, prepare it, make it straight. And that that imagery then continues into verse 4, where you have that same thought of what does it look like for this way to be ready or straight? Uh, Take us into those images that Isaiah brings out. Yeah, sure. Um, So every valley lifted up every mountain and he'll be made low and the uneven ground should become level and rough places a plain. So this idea, everything becomes sort of smoothed out so that there's nothing again, barring the way uh, for God's mercy and grace to come. And, and if we think about it in, in terms of, you know, even our own experience, there are certain valleys and hills that, that really get in the way. Um, you know, one of the biggest ones is human pride and human arrogance. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very shocking thing for people. And, and I was, you know, I used to participate in this uh, evangelism program and, and it would always lead with um, heaven is a free gift. And if you think about it as Lutherans, for us, it's like, oh, praise the Lord. That's fantastic. That's wonderful news. But if you're not raised with this, this concept already that, you know, I'm a, a poor, miserable sinner, uh, that comes pretty, it's pretty harsh. You know, it's like, well, why does it have to be a free gift? Well, it has to be free because you're so messed up, right? Yeah. Um, so having anything else in the way, you know, your, your own, your own uh, works, which are always uh, already corrupted by sin, when those things get in the way, uh, they, they do. They become impediments for, for hearing the gospel and, and the good news that forgiveness, God's forgiveness and Christ's righteousness, um, that, becomes, that comes to us as a free gift. Uh, I've been thinking about this uh, quite a lot recently. Um, you know, I, I always pray with my, my sons at the beginning and the end of the day, and we've been praying quite often for places like, uh, you know, uh, Russia and Ukraine and Israel and Palestine and now some of this conflict in, in uh, Iran. But we also pray for Christians who are in persecuted uh, situations, you know. Um, but as I was, I was reflecting on that, I'm reminded that historically speaking, the time when the church grows tends to be times of persecution. Mm. Um, and so I think maybe we also ought to include in our church's prayers uh, Christians who are in first world countries, Christians who are in societies where everything is pretty much fine, you know, and, and life seems good and we have pretty much everything that we need. Um, when this happens, when, when we're so comfortable, it can become very, very easy for us to forget how contingent we are, you know, that, that uh, we don't know what the next moment will hold. Uh, we forget that. We forget our need for God's constant provision for us. And so we need to, to, to bear that in mind as well. So again, that's another obstacle. You can have the obstacles of, of our own arrogance, our own pride, and obstacles just of the good things that we already enjoy that can lead us away or uh, cause us to forget our need for Christ. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, with the uh, mountains and hills being made low and the thought of our pride and arrogance needing to be leveled, that's that's definitely something that, that we, in our context, need to keep in mind. I, you mentioned Job earlier in a different context with the doubling that happens at the end of that book. But I've often thought of the book of Job sort of being the opposite of what's happening now. Job, was he had everything taken away, and the question is, will he stay faithful and it seems to me that right now we're being given everything, and the question is, will we stay faithful? So it's the same question, different circumstances, but either either way, we need to stay faithful. 
Yeah, yeah. C.S. Lewis in uh, Screw Tape Letters has some wonderful stuff about this, especially uh, for people in like middle age. You know, it's like in middle age, in the middle of life, and and you you think you've uh, finally. I think the phrase the way he puts it is something like, "You think you finally found your place in the world." when in reality, the world has found its place in your heart or something along those lines, you know? Um, so that's definitely a danger for us. Yeah, let me ask you this about the, the idea of the mountains being made low and the valleys also being lifted up. I've sometimes connected that to the way, for example, Mary sings in the Magnificat about the mm. humble being exalted, such that the sometimes the obstacle is the pride and the arrogance that you're talking about, and that needs to be leveled. Other times, I think the obstacle can be the despair to think that God could never love us or never come to us, and in that sense, then the valley needs to be be raised up. Yeah, that's I really appreciate that too, and that you're you're absolutely right. Um, and and you can see that I think especially among people who have had bad ex, bad relationships early on, you know, who've who've been put down a lot and and are always told that they're that they're worthless. And, and so I think for for hearing that that you know we can actually acknowledge to some extent it's like, hey, guess what? Um, when it comes to God, we are all broken. We are all condemned. We're, 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 we're totally pathetic, right? But here's the good news is that God glories in taking nothingness and making stuff out of it, right? Of, of uh, taking things that are dead and making them alive, of giving to those who have nothing his, whole, his kingdom. You know, that's an incredible gift uh, and, 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 a, and a, a, a truth that we cannot believe without the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, for sure. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So the Lord sends His Holy Spirit so that we would believe these things, to hear this good news that He is proclaiming here through Isaiah about valleys being lifted up, mountains and hill being made low. We'll talk more about the uneven ground and the rough places on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Martin Dressler this morning about the opening part of Isaiah 40. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, February 27th. We're studying Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 11 with Pastor Martin Dressler. He serves at Salem Lutheran Church in Blackjack, Missouri. Pastor Dressler, prior to the break, we were looking at Isaiah's preaching there in verse 4 of our text about valleys being lifted up, mountains and hill being made low. He also talks about uneven ground becoming level and rough places a plain. How does that fit into this imagery? Yeah, so uneven places, it's sort of like, <clears throat> you can imagine, it's sort of like crooked places as well. Um, and I, that is significant because, uh, you know, if we, if we think about uh, our own 
relationship with with God and and um, well, certainly the Judaites' relationship with God, they're crooked, right? Uh, they're not in a right relationship. They're not righteous. They're 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 bent, as it were, bent by sin. And so here's there's this promise, uh, ultimately, of justification, of being made right, of being straightened out again. And this is already what Isaiah is, is pointing to here. So it's not just that the, that the arrogant are brought low uh, to receive the gift, and those who can't imagine it being possible that they're given this promise, but it's those who um, are, are, are bent by their sin, who are outside of a right relationship with God, they are restored to a right relationship with God as well. And that comes again through, ultimately, uh, the uh, righteousness that we receive passively from Christ, who sets us in that right Coram Deo relationship, a right relationship with God. So the way has been prepared, made straight for God to come, valleys lifted up, mountains made low, crooked made straight, so that, in verse 5, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. All flesh is going to see it. And this is from the mouth of the Lord. Talk to us first just about that phrase, the glory of the Lord. That's really significant, especially, well, in Old and New Testaments both. It is. Uh, <clears throat> so I've been doing some uh, work not well, recently, um, and there's a, a theologian I've, being re I've relied on. He's a Roman Catholic guy named Hans Urs von Balthasar, and you can't not like a person whose name is Hans Urs von Balthasar. I mean, what a cool <laughs> name. Uh, but uh, he, he has a, a series of books, and the first five, I think it's first five, are called the glory of the Lord, and they're different volumes, and they're super, super dense. Um, but he he works with this this theme, and and sort of unpacks. And we don't agree with everything he says, obviously, because he has you know because he's from a Roman Catholic tradition. But there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, but he certainly grasps the significance of this phrase, the glory of the Lord. It shows up 37 times in the Old Testament. Um, glory is mentioned over 200 times in the Old Testament, uh, 38 times in Isaiah alone. Mm. Uh, so, you know, there, it's, it's this idea that there's, a, there's a, a, a divine aspect, some aspect of God that's sort of made visible to human beings, that we can actually perceive it. Um, we can think of, you know, some well-known examples of that. There'd be the, uh, the Lord's presence in uh, the cloud and in the pillar of fire. Um, the provision for uh, manna for the Israelites, it happens there as well. Uh, the, probably the most famous ones are the, the temple and the tabernacle, right? So after the tabernacle is completed, after the temple is completed, there's this, uh, there's this cloud that descends and covers them. And, and what is that? Well, that's, that's the presence, that's the glory of the Lord settling on this place. Um, and as also as a symbol and a signal to people, uh, this is where God is looking. Because God is everywhere, obviously. We said that God is omnipresent. But this specific location, it's, it's saying this is where God is present for you for your goodness, right? For, for your welfare, God is locating himself here. And so, and, you know, we were recording this early, but this upcoming Sunday, you have already have heard this, uh, the transfiguration, you know? Yeah. There's this, this cloud that descends on Jesus. And so now the presence of God is no longer in the temple, no longer in the tabernacle. It's located in the person of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Yeah, so the, the glory of the Lord is, is revealed in Jesus Christ. I, Dig into that a little bit more, how we see the glory of the Lord in Jesus, not just in the transfiguration. Yeah, um, so the, the, the transfiguration is the one that's, that's very obvious, you know, and, and everybody looking at that would say, oh, what a glorious scene. Sure. Uh, what, we, what we begin to notice, though, especially in, uh, in, in Christ, is that the glory of the Lord is, uh, cannot be separated from God's saving action. You see that throughout time. It's not just this static, impressive sight. 
but it's God actually doing something for the sake of his people. Um, and so you see this most clearly in a place where you would least expect it, which is at the cross, you know, on Good Friday. Uh, uh, well, Latin phrase for that is this idea of uh, God's glory coming to us uh, subcontrary or, you know, under the sign of the opposite in the place where you least expect it. I can't remember who had said this, but I think it's very true um, that God was never more God uh, than when he hung dead on a cross. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, that's, that's so profound to think about this. This is where God really comes and acts on behalf of his people. And this is the thing in which God glories. He glories in rescue. He glories in, in granting forgiveness and restoration. Um, so you see it there. And again, you'll see it in Easter with the resurrection, because we, we mentioned this the last time we were together. Um, that those two events cannot be pulled apart. You know, they're, they're seen as a unity. And so you've got the glory of, of Good Friday, which nobody really would recognize just by looking at this crucified man, unless you know what he's accomplishing through it. And then you've got the glory of Israel, with, or the glory of the Lord in the resurrection of Christ, uh, where he uh, promises restoration or, and resurrection to all of his people too. Hmm. Um, John talks about this in chapter one uh, of his gospel. Uh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Mm. Um, th this is, I, I'm, a, I'm a, a big fan of hymnody and of, and of liturgy in general. And uh, I always find it interesting that Lutheran hymns, uh, our hymnody tend to focus less on the attributes of God and more on the actions of God. And that, that's a, it's a really good test. To, to run on hymns or, or songs that, you, that uh, you know you might appreciate, ask yourself, is it talking about just these generic qualities of God that aren't really fully fleshed out and talked about? Or is it talking about things that God has done in history for the sake of his people, for me, you know, and, and how that changes my life and gives me a hope and a future? Yeah. Now, now, we know Isaiah has been writing to Judean exiles, but as we get into verse 5, we see that his word, the message that the Lord has, this glory that's going to be revealed, is bigger than just Judean exiles. He says all flesh is going to see it together. Yeah, uh, right. And so, you know, if, if you ask yourself, if, if you're to keep it within that historical context, you could say something like this, that just as the news of the Exodus spread to other regions as well, because people you know, knew about the Israelites, like, oh, you're the guys that came from Egypt. Okay, better watch out for these folks. Um, yeah, the assumption is that... that uh, news of, of this will also spread around the region. But, you know, take it to its uh, greater uh, meaning. And uh, we'll, we're going to see in here already the idea of, of the second coming of Christ. And nobody's going to miss the second coming of Christ. Um, you know, it, it says all, all flesh will see it together. That means all creation probably, but, you know, it's specifically focused on human beings, that not a single person is going to miss Christ's second coming when he, when he comes to uh, to claim his people, to restore them, to, to raise us from our graves, and to put creation back uh, as it was always intended to be, uncorrupted by sin. Um, and I think the, the, the last verse here, uh, the last couple words are, are so cool. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Um, and, and I like that. I like especially what Handel did with this. I said I was going to bring it back up again. And so here's why I think it's so cool. Um, Handel uses the bases, and he may use the tenors, but I'm pretty sure it's just the bases, to have this line repeated. And it's on a, almost the entire phrase is on a single note. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And it's just so clear, and it's in unison, and Handel's, it's almost as if he's saying, all of this stuff seems impossible to believe. 
right? Because right now you're in the you're in the gutter, you're at you're in the bottom of the pit. Life is awful, but it's all going to be undone. Right? There's going to be this restoration. Well, how do I know? The mouth of the Lord has spoken it, and what God says, you can take to the bank because God never goes back on His promises. Yeah, that's right. Thinking about the the transfiguration that you brought up earlier, you know, the Father's voice there in the mount says, listen to him, listen to the son. Mm -hmm. And after the transfiguration is over, the three disciples, they look up and all they see is Jesus only. <sighs> and, and then Jesus descends from the mountain and goes to the cross. And so how do, you, like, how do you know that that is a glorious event there at the cross? Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And I mean, there's, there's the assurance. It comes from the mouth of the Lord. There's the promise. It is true. Believe it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's huge. Yeah, it's, it's great too because, you know, the very first thing that they experience when they come down from that mountain is a demon possessed guy. You know, it's like, yeah. boy, talk about landing with a bump. You know, <laughs> that's... <laughs> that's right. That's right. Now we, we come back to the text from Isaiah and we have another voice. A voice says, cry. I said, what shall I cry? And we get, oh, some, some pretty tough words for our culture to hear today about the reality of humanity. Take us into the next section. Yeah, so uh, a voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Uh, and this, this is, is uh, repeated uh, throughout these next few verses. Um, we definitely do not like to hear this idea of, of human transience, of human uh, contingency. Uh, but what his voice is doing is, is reminding people of something that we don't like to think about it and, and forget very often. So, you know, it's, it's been, I'm not the only person who's, who's thought of this by any stretch of the imagination, but what we do with our, with our elderly folks, you know, uh, mm. often the, the, if, if, you, if you meet someone who keeps um, uh, a disabled relative with them in the house, that's kind of an unusual thing. Mm. Um, and, and even if it's a possibility, right? Uh, sometimes it is, it is possible, it would be possible for someone to do that, but we'd re really rather not be bothered. Um, and so we tend to, you know, move these symbols and these signs of our, of our mortality to a place where we can't see it anymore. You know, I remember hearing one time a, uh, a commercial for a prescription medication, and it says, it may increase your risk of death, which I thought was the strangest <laughs> phrase. I know what they meant, right? They meant premature death, but say that because, you know, your risk of death is actually 100%. That's right. Uh, so uh, even, the, even the medical companies haven't figured this out, apparently. Um, but here's this voice in Isaiah saying, no, it's going to happen, right? I mean, you are like grass, um, and you do fade, and you do uh, wither. So that's the set verse 7, right? The grass withers and the flower fades. Now, here's the point. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, yeah. um, this reminds us that we're not in control of our lives. Uh, we're not the ones ultimately who, who keep ourselves, who sustain ourselves. That, that comes uh, from God. Now, it's fascinating that this is the same breath uh, that breathed into Adam's nostrils, the breath of life. Mm. Um, yeah, First Samuel talks about this too. God is the one who kills and, and the one who makes alive. It, it, I would encourage you know, all the listeners to, to do this. When you're, next time you find yourself walking across a parking lot or just walking through your house, before you take the second step, think to yourself, God could decide that I should not exist at this moment. Mm. You know, this is Luther in the, in the first article of the creed where he talks about you know, just how 
everything holds on God's willing us to continue existing. We forget about that. We think we have some existence that's somehow guaranteed apart from our relationship and connection with God, and that's simply not the case. And Isaiah is just drawing that to the fore and making us remember, oh, that's right, I forgot. There's a 100% chance of death. Go figure. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Now, that that thought of, of God being the one who sustains us at every single moment, I think, carries us forward into verse 8, where, where we get a wonderful statement from Isaiah. Again, the grass withers, the flower fades, but then he has this beautiful promise, the word of our God will stand forever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what a, what, you know, yeah, exactly. It's, it's what a wonderful word of comfort after being brought face to face with our mortality, with our contingency. Um, and so we can ask ourselves, you know, the word of the Lord endures forever. The word of our God and will stand forever. And we can ask ourselves, what is that word? You know, and so for most people, at least in an American context, when we hear the word, you know, the word of God, our go-to response is, well, we're talking about the scripture. We're talking about the Bible. And that's not untrue. You know, scripture is the word of God. Um, but in, in context and, 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 you know, especially in context of the, of the New Testament, the word of God is Jesus. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we're talking ultimately here about, about Christ, the, the incarnate Word of God, um, the one to whom uh, all the rest of Scripture refers or eventually points. You know, so we're going back to transfiguration again. Moses and Elijah, you know, both of them. What's their point? To point to Jesus, to point to the incarnate Word. And then here's Christ, and what happens to them when he arrives? They disappear because their job is done. You know, it's like John the Baptist. He must... He must increase, I must mm. decrease. Uh, Paul does the same thing, right? Uh, I no longer live, Christ lives in me. Um, so all of this is pointing to, pointing to Christ and to the promise that he makes to his people. So it's not just words about God, it's not just descriptions about God, about his you know, telling us about himself, um, but it's rather uh, this, this promise and this pledge that God makes, a commitment that he makes to us through Christ that's going to stand, you know, in spite of all of these circumstances that you may be experiencing, in spite of the fact that maybe your family has all been killed, you've lost literally everything. The one thing that will not ever fade or pass away or collapse is God's promise to you. Mm, um, yeah. And for Christians, it's the promise you made in baptism, right? That's, they, nothing can take that away from you, not even the grave. Ah, what, what a glorious word of God. His word endures, stands forever. And so we have more people to proclaim that, starting in verse 9. Zion and Jerusalem are called the herald of good news. They need to lift up their voices to proclaim, behold your God. There, I have handle in my head again with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's hard. It's, it's impossible not, not to hear it. But yeah, so we've got several <laughs> commands early on, right? We've got comfort. We've got a speaking command, a calling out command, a prepare command, make level. And here we've got, get up, you know, get up this mountain. And who's supposed to get up the mountain? Well, Zion or, or Jerusalem. They're the ones who are supposed to be the heralds of this, of this good news, of this, of this gospel. Um, and so, you know, who, what is Zion? Well, it refers to the, the people that God has uh, entered into uh, a covenant with, right? So he's covenanted these people. He's bound himself to these people. And now he's saying, get up like this, this high spot so that everyone can hear, you know? So as, as Christians, we understand that... Um, Ultimately, this refers to the church, those that he has drawn into a relationship with himself uh, through baptism. So this is the body of Christ in the world. Um, and really, this ties in with the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, right? Um, make disciples of all nations, baptizing. I think that's just another way of saying 
what's being spoken here, right? That, that you're going to get up and be a, a herald of this, uh, of this good news. Um, before we get there, though, you know, Isaiah 61, we can go there for just a second. Uh, and we hear from the servant that, that comes up later. Um, and the servant says that God has anointed him to preach this good news. Jesus takes that. That's Isaiah 61, uh, 1. Uh, Jesus takes this in Luke chapter 4 and applies it to himself. You know, he's in the synagogue. And there's a very good chance that they're simply working with some kind of electionary system. They've got a cycle of readings going on or something like that. And so he's handed the scroll of Isaiah and he reads it. And they're sort of waiting for him to comment on it. And he, he only says one thing, you know, this is about me. You know, this has been fulfilled. And, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine how quiet it must have been in the room after he made that claim. <laughs> yeah. Mic drop moment. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so he's the one who fulfills all this. He is the servant who, who makes all of this happen. Um, so lifting up the voice, and you can think of it as, as, as a rally cry. It's an encouragement to uh, the beleaguered children of God. And really, this is what a pastor's sermon uh, should do, too. Um, you know, it, it is that, that encouragement. And, and, and it's what we say at Easter, isn't it? I mean, if we think about, you know, what is a, a one phrase that Christians repeat to one another um, in the springtime, all the time, it's Christ is risen. He's risen, He's risen indeed. indeed. Yeah, I'm not going to say the next word because I know what That's time right. That's right. <laughs> this is airing during the season of Lent. So. Yeah, so I'm not going to yeah. say that. But um, that is a rally cry for us, you know, and, and that, that, that is, uh, that's what our hope is founded on. Um, and so when someone is going through a difficult time in life, uh, a, a relative has died, a spouse has died, or, you know, they've received bad news like this, or maybe a, a business has gone bankrupt that someone has, has worked, uh, worked at for, for decades. Uh, knowing uh, Christ is risen. What a comfort that is. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Now, the, the rally cry, particularly in verse 9, is behold your God. Why, why mm -hmm. that? Yeah. Um, behold your God, because... Uh, let me get to the right passage here. Sorry, I'm just following along with the Bible. Because this is the one who actually, who actually comes to us, right? Um, so they're going to actually witness this God's activity. And in Christ, we're actually going to see it. We're going to behold him, you know, face to face. Um, I think it's really cool going on into, into verse 10 here. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense uh, is with him as well. So this idea of the, the arm of the Lord is, is really important. Uh, it, it's, it's super uh, uh, critical for the Exodus when Israel was brought out of, the, out of slavery from Egypt. And it's, it's, it's wonderful to think, you know, God has not only a powerful arm that can rescue them, but he's got a long arm. <laughs> he can reach all the way to Egypt and rescue them. And for Christians, he can reach all the way down into the grave, you know, and pull you back out again. So that's, that's the, the, the length and, and the power of this God, God's arm who rules for him. And we would say that arm is, is, is ultimately, uh, you know, Christ. Um, and, and this is, yeah, it, it, one thing that, I, that, that, is, that is so neat here, too. Uh, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. Um, I, I can't help uh, but go to uh, a parable that, that Jesus spoke here as well. So it talks about this, you know, this recompense and, and this reward. What is the reward that God is trying to get out of this? You know, what is his recompense? It's nothing other than his people. Hmm. Right? That's what he's aiming for. That's what he's actually trying to recover and, and to, to get. Um, that's exactly what, what Christ was doing too. What, what does Christ get out of, out of this deal? You know, when he, when he comes and, and is crucified and is raised, what does he get out of that deal? 
gets us. You know, we're we're the the we're the ones that 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 God comes and 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 treasures, and uh, He comes and, and claims us. So I'm thinking of especially about Jesus' parable with the um, the strong man. Mm. You know? um, no one can break into a strong man's house unless he first binds the strong man's, and then indeed he may plunder the strong man's house. So you know, we're thinking about how Christ did that uh, to the cross. Christ forgives our sins and, and robs the strong man of his power. Satan's only power, his only weapon is accusation. When our sin is gone, Satan has nothing with which to accuse us anymore. And so that strong man is bound. And then what does Christ do? Then he's enabled to, to plunder the house and take the, the, the goods out, which would be us, out from under the tyranny of sin yeah. and death and Satan. That's such an incredible... Uh, image that, that that Jesus brings and that Isaiah is pointing to here already too. Well, I think that's a very helpful thing, particularly verses ten and eleven, because you have the Lord as a strong man here, a very mighty warrior, but you also have him as a, a tender shepherd. And so, with the the idea of Jesus as the strong man who binds the devil, on the one hand, he uses his strength to defeat our enemies. But then that same strength turns toward us in gentleness and in tenderness, as you talked about earlier, speaking tenderly. And so the fact that the Lord is the mighty warrior and the tender shepherd, actually, although it seems a bit of a contrast, it goes hand in hand with the work of his deliverance of, of us sinners. Yeah, and, and this is something that uh, the Babylonians did not experience, right, with their god Marduk. He was not a god who was interested in a, in a personal relationship with people, uh, not a god of mercy. Uh, not a god of this kind of tenderness. You, you don't see that in, in other uh, ancient Near East um, uh, cults. Uh, but that is very much a unique feature of, of Israel's God, of Yahweh, of, of our God. And so, yeah, so the, for those who are opposed to Yahweh, those who are uh, trying to trample his people, right, uh, Yahweh becomes this, this warrior. But for those whom God has claimed for himself, he is this shepherd. Uh, you think of all the Psalm 23 imagery that, that goes along with that, you know, uh, green pastures, uh, anointing our heads with oil, overflowing cups, you know, all of this stuff is bound up with, with this shepherding motif. Uh, and, and it's brought to uh, uh, fruition or, or, or its culmination uh, in the Good Shepherd, in Jesus, in John chapter 10. So Psalm 23 talks about some of the things that the shepherd will give to us sheep. Again, green pastures, overflowing cup, oil. But it's in John 10 that we see, you know, exactly how much the good shepherd gives to his people. And what does he give? He gives himself. He gives the greatest gift of all. He gives his own life. And with that, uh, the whole, the entire kingdom as well. Hmm. So definitely you get these, uh, uh, the, the, the warrior on one hand for those, for, for Satan ultimately, and Satan's um, uh, minions, <laughs> uh, but then for the, his people, you get the shepherd who's a, a, a caring shepherd who, who gathers his flock and, and binds up their wounds. Talk a little bit more about that that word you just, just used, the gathering of the lambs. I mean, we, we see Jesus especially as the good shepherd leading us, using Psalm 23, green pastures, still waters, but what about that gathering aspect? How does how does that factor in? We've got about three minutes here. Maybe use that to, to wrap things up for us this morning. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So so the, the scattering is obvious, right? They've been plundered and pillaged, and there's exile going on. So there's definitely a whole bunch of scattering away from Jerusalem that's happening here. And yet there's this pledge to, to gather God's people uh, once again, to gather them to himself. And this happens, I should say, locally, 
uh, when the, with the return to Jerusalem, right? Uh, but again, because I, I see all of Isaiah and what happens in Isaiah and, and the, the exile and also what happens in Exodus is sort of shadows of the great cosmic thing that's going to happen when Christ returns. Um, we can see a, a gathering that occurs at Pentecost when you've got people from all over the, the, the world, right, uh, who come and, and receive the Holy Spirit and, and hear the, the apostles speaking in their own languages the mighty works of God. Again, the mighty works of God, not, the mighty, not necessarily the mighty attributes of God, but the things that he's done through Christ. That happens definitely in Pentecost where the Spirit, and, and eventually also we'll see this as, as Paul writes his epistles uh, to various churches, the, the unity that God creates with Jew and with Gentile. So it's not only the uniting of, of the, the, uh, the bloodline of Abraham, but ultimately it's, it's referring to those who are, of, uh, who are in the, the one body, the body of Christ, by virtue of having been brought together by the Holy Spirit. And finally, we get to the, to the very end, uh, the book of Revelation will talk about this, in particular in, in uh, Revelation chapter 7, where you've got 12,000 from all these different tribes, and then you've got all the people before the, the throne uh, uh, and before the Lamb uh, praising God uh, with the same song, by the way, which is kind of cool. Uh, but there you've got the, you know, the, the eschatological fulfillment of everything that we have seen just a, 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 a small picture of, uh, in Isaiah, and then also uh, going back all the way to the Exodus. Yeah, the, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, John says yeah. there in Revelation 7, the fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah preached here in Isaiah chapter 40. Pastor Martin Dressler serves at Salem Lutheran Church in Blackjack, Missouri. He's been helping us today to study Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 11. Pastor Dressler, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks so much for letting me come on. Comfort, comfort says your God to you. You are his people. He speaks tenderly to you. He has given you double for all your sins, that double comfort that comes through Jesus Christ, who is your good shepherd, the one whose mighty arm has defeated your greatest enemies, and who now gathers you into his holy church as his little lambs leading you into eternal life. That promise is sure because his word endures forever. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Isaiah 40, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Showing support for KFUO is now easier than ever. You can sport a KFUO shirt, swag, or even socks by visiting our online store. Go to kfuo.org store and order high-quality KFUO-branded merch. You no longer need to wait for our annual share for a chance to show your KFUO spirit. Visually share and wear this ministry out in the world by checking out our selection. Every purchase helps to support our proclamation of Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Go to kfuo.org store.